Well, this past week, uh, Susie and I celebrated our, our wedding anniversary, nine years this past week, and it was, it was funny, the timing of it, because just a few days ago, we were going through some things in the garage, and you, you know how that goes, right? You go through things, and you figure out what to keep, and what to get rid of, and what to put somewhere else, and we were doing a little bit of that this past week, and uh, we came across, uh, uh, really, I guess it was just a, a packet of all kinds of different papers, and just a variety of different things. I know you don't have those kinds of things tucked away in your garage anywhere, in a closet, but uh, we were going through those things, just reading through them, and some of it was pretty dated. Now, let me just give you a little bit of a time frame before I finish this, this particular story. We, uh, this was our ninth wedding anniversary, and uh, so we were married in 2003. We dated for three years going up to that, and uh, in 1999 is where really things started for us. We, we really just built a good, solid friendship for that first year. Starting in 1999, I was living in North Carolina in seminary, and she was here in Savannah, and uh, and so 1999 was really kind of where everything started. That's, what, 12, 13 years ago now. And so, so leading up to that point, she and I had known each other, and we were familiar with each other, had a lot of the same friends. You know, we knew each other superficially, but not with any depth at all. Well, as we were going through our stuff in the garage, I found a, uh, I found a bulletin from another church here in town, and it was a church service that she had attended that particular day, and that service was in 1996. And so just to kind of tie it all together, we knew each other, but we did not know each other well. Well, in that church service in 1996, I happened to be the one preaching. And so I found this bulletin, right? She was in another part of the garage, and I found this bulletin, and uh, she had notes. She took notes from my sermon that day of preaching, 1996. And, uh, but the thing that caught my eye was that she had written my name up in the top corner along with the date, September or whatever, 1996. And I noticed something that stood out to me because when she wrote my name, she wrote Brooks Kale, C-A-L-E. And that's not the way that I spell my last name. And so I, I said to her, I said, Susie, look, look at this. I said, you misspelled my last name. And then it dawned on me, I said, wait a minute, you misspelled your last name. <laughs> and it was just kind of a funny little reminder that God sees the big picture, doesn't he? And we just see a little small slice of it. You know, God sees the whole train. We only see one little rail car from time to time. We, we see the, the, little, the little frame in the picture. God sees the, 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 the big painting, and, and that's the way life operates. We can't possibly see the things that God sees. God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And as we go through life, we're constantly reminded of the fact that God sees the big picture, and we often miss that big picture. Uh, here on staff, we've got a couple of staff members, one in particular, Jason, our children's pastor, who uh, went to seminary the same time that I was there at seminary up at Southeastern, Wake Forest, North Carolina. We didn't know each other on campus, and there were maybe times whenever we would cross paths, didn't even know it. Maybe we introduced ourselves at each other, you know, to each other in the cafeteria or somewhere there on campus. Maybe we even had a class together. We've never checked that out, but there was a couple of years there where our children's pastor, Jason, and I, uh, the pastor here, we were on the same campus at the same time. Never had a clue that we would ever serve on the same, uh, the same church staff at some point years down the road. Maybe God got a little chuckle from time to time if we ever did cross paths and say, hey, maybe God just kind of thought, <laughs> y'all are going to connect again somewhere down the road. It was funny how God operates that way. I still remember being a skinny little ninth grader, uh, high school Bible class, taught by a man named Earl Best. And at that time, that very same year in ninth grade, Earl Best was, the, was a pastor. And he pastored this church right here. It was Wilmington Island Baptist Church then. I wonder if God didn't get a little bit of a chuckle when he looked and in the same classroom were two pastors that would pastor the same church, one teaching the class and one probably struggling to make a grade that would allow him to pass. You know, God, God sees the big picture. 
And we often miss that big picture. You know, for some of you this morning, you're at a place in your life right now today where you're only seeing that one little snapshot and it's not, it's not good, it's not pretty. Maybe for you, you're at a place just like two people we're going to read of here in just a moment as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You may be at a place of real hopelessness. You may be at a place of real discouragement this morning. You might be at a place of real confusion, a place where you're searching and you're looking and you're wondering, how is God going to make any sense of what you face today? Some of you, you've been trying to put pieces together in your life. You've never come to a place where you've yielded your life to Jesus Christ. And you're at a place today where you're only seeing one little snapshot, but God sees the big picture of what he wants to do in your life, what he wants to do in your circumstance. And so turn with me in, Luke to, in your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 24. And we're going to take just a few minutes. I only take usually about 10, maybe 15 minutes on the days that we celebrate the Lord's Supper because we like to give priority to that. But I, I just want to try to set the stage a little to what we're going to be looking at here in Luke chapter 24. What we find here in this passage of Scripture, I'll give you a little bit of a, of a setting, is that the crucifixion of Christ has already taken place. Jesus has already been crucified. Uh, he is now also, on this very day that we're going to read of here, he's also been resurrected. Well, traveling on a dusty road just seven miles between cities are a couple of travelers. We only have the name of one of them. His name is, is Cleopas. The other we don't know. Maybe his wife. It may be a buddy of his. Both undoubtedly are followers of Christ, but they don't have the big picture. They're still living on the Friday of the execution, the Friday of the death or the crucifixion of Christ. They're not living on the Sunday, so to speak, of the resurrection and of the, of the, uh, the restoration of life that came. And so pick up with me here in Luke chapter 24, verse 13 is where we'll begin. It says, Behold, two of them, two followers of Christ, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Let me just stop there for a second. These two travelers, as they travel, they're talking about the details of that weekend. Undoubtedly, they're talking about how Jesus was arrested, how he was tried, how he was wrongly convicted and ultimately hung on the cross. They very likely were there to witness that, to see that as it all unfolded before their very eyes. And so as we read here, we see two travelers who are dejected, they are weary, they are confused, they are disheartened. And as they're traveling, what happens is, is that Jesus, without them realizing who he is, comes alongside of them and begins to travel with them. Verse 16, it says, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? That's a, that's a nice uh, uh, biblical way of saying, uh, What rock have you been living under? That's kind of what they're saying. Where, where have you been? I mean, are, are you the only person in the whole city of Jerusalem that doesn't have a clue about what has happened this past weekend? That's what they're saying to him. Verse 19, and Jesus said to them, what things? And they said, see, he's drawing them out. And they said, things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word and in the sight of God and all the people. How the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they didn't see. 
Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, that's a reference to the Old Testament, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going. And he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And listen to the commentary, listen to what they say. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? You know, for these two travelers, living before their understanding of the events of the resurrection, their lives were affected to the point of hopelessness, absolute sheer hopelessness. But when they had this encounter with Jesus and understood who he was, and as he began to open up to them and help them to understand the beauty of the whole Old Testament scriptures and how it points to a Savior named Christ, of a sacrifice and his resurrection, as all that began to unfold, they said, our hearts burned in us like never before. You know, there's something that stood out to me when I, when I read this passage of scripture sometime recently, and I want you to notice verse 28. And I'll read it again. It says, as they approached the village, the village of Emmaus, where they were going, he acted as though he were going farther. Does that strike you as just a little bit odd? Why would Jesus act as though he's going further? Because it put them in a position to decide. Did they want him more? To the point to where they would spend more time with him? Or would they just let him go on his way? Chalk it up to coincidence and ultimately miss him in the process. Here's my fear. It's that if you walk into the majority of churches in this country today that sing songs that highlight the name of Jesus, they have Lord's Supper services that focus on the centrality of the gospel of Jesus dying and rising again. If you walk into churches just like this across this country, you will find those churches filled with people That if Jesus acted as though he were going further in their life, they would be just fine with him leaving. Because all they want is a superficial quality of religion. They have no desire for a deep, abiding walk with the Savior that the Scriptures speak of. A Savior that puts his finger on things in our lives and says, that needs to go. A Savior that comes alongside of us in times when we hurt and says, I've got a plan for you. They don't want that kind of a Savior. They just want a blessing. They just want a sense of some kind of a a soothing that helps them to feel as though I'm okay, even though I don't care a thing about following this person, Jesus. And if he acted like he was going further, they'd never call him back. You know, it's the Lord's Supper that helps us to understand where we stand with Christ. This is a time just for Christians. The Bible is fairly clear about that. That if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, I I would ask just out of integrity and in honor of of God's word not to take of this, just to pass the plate. It won't put you on display at all. No one will even notice. But this is a time for Christians. That's the way the Bible speaks of the Lord's Supper. And it's a time for us to take of the bread and take of the juice that symbolize, that represent the body and the blood of Christ. 
But whenever we read in Scripture of the time of the early church celebrating the Lord's Supper, what we would often find is that they placed a tremendous amount of uh, significance on that particular celebration. And it was a time for them to look over the course of their lives and to take inventory to see, number one, am I in the faith? Am I a follower of Christ? And number two, is my life still yielded to him the way that it once was? And I would encourage each one of us, I I had time this morning before I ever came here, and I hope for you that you would take time today as we take of this as believers, as part of the body of Christ, that you take inventory of your life to see, am I a believer in Christ? Am I a follower of Christ? And is my life completely, fully, totally yielded to him? Or are there things that exist in me that would bring reproach upon the name of Christ? Are there things in my life, in my attitudes, in my behavior, in the way I carry myself, are there things that that would bring dishonor to the name of, of Christ? Or the best that I can, as imperfect as I can, can I at least say that my life is yielded? That I am a follower of Jesus Christ. There's an author named Dorothy Sayers. Came across a quote of hers that I thought was significant and appropriate for today. Listen to what she wrote. She said, it's curious that people who are filled with horrified indignation whenever a cat kills a sparrow can hear the story of the killing of God told Sunday after Sunday and not experience any shock at all. You know, when we come to a service like this, it's not a service to drag us back through the mud because forgiveness is just that. It's a letting go of our sin. It is a paying up for our sins. And for many of us as believers, for those of us who are believers, our sins are forgiven. They are washed away. But when we come to this, the Lord's Supper, It should be a time for us to reflect on and remember the depth of our sin. That it cost Jesus his own life to forgive it. But at the same time, it should point us to that Savior. That we are who we are as Christians because of one person and it's not us. It's all because of him. So where do you stand in relationship to Christ this morning? Would you say that you have a relationship with him? Are you in Christ? And if you are, would you say that you are a life that is yielded to him? That you're a believer who doesn't just believe in him in word or in deed or just in your mind intellectually? Would you say that your life is at a point to where as imperfect as it is, at least you're yielded and your life is in his hands to do with whatever he pleases? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that During this special time for us as Christians, Lord, we are able to celebrate what you've done for us. Lord, the Lord's Supper does not drag us back through the depths of our sin that we've committed. Lord, that sin is forgiven, and your word says that you hold it against us no more. It It is removed, taken away from us because of Christ. And so, Lord, we don't drag ourselves back through our sin again to feel guilty. Lord, but we need to remember the sin that we've committed and the sin that we continue to commit, that it is of such a nature in your sight that it required the life of your perfect son to pay for it. And so, Lord, the celebration of the Lord's Supper is a recognition of sin. It's a recognition of forgiveness, and it's a recognition of the Savior, Jesus Christ. That we're not saved because of a baptism. We're not saved because of a church membership. We're not saved because of a good life. And we're certainly not saved because we take of this bread and this juice. Lord, we are saved because we fall on our face before you and cry out for the forgiveness of Jesus as we turn from sin and yield our lives to Christ. And so, Lord, in a sense, this is like a renewal of vows for us. It's a time to take inventory. It's a time to say, that we'd do it all over again if we needed to. 
because you mean that much to us. And so God bless this time, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.